I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today was an All-American football player at the University of Florida and was drafted the first round by the Chicago Bears and played for Hall of Fame coach Mike Ditka, then Don Shula, and finished his career with John Gruden and the Oakland Raiders. Trace Armstrong uh, is one of the most respected agents uh, in the football business. He works for Athletes First. Some of his clients include Mike McCarthy, head coach of the Cowboys, Matt Rule, Notre Dame's Brian Kelly, and Urban Myers. We discuss his career and how he approaches uh, his business of being an agent and how competitive the industry is. We welcome Trace Armstrong. Virginia. Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps, uh, served in Vietnam. Uh, so I was born at uh, Bethesda Hospital there in Maryland uh, on the day uh, LBJ had his uh, uh, gallbladder removed. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's my, my brush with history. But um, moved to Alabama as a young kid. It was great uh, in that you know, the area I grew up in, sports was just a part of the culture. You know, I grew up on a street with a bunch of kids, you know, a lot of them about my age. Uh, we all played sports together. So there was a, you know, League World Series. Uh, you know, in five years, we lost one football game. So we just had this, like, great kind of idyllic environment growing up, parents involved in, in sports. Uh, so it was it really kind of propelled me to what came next in my life. You know, when I got done with high school, uh, I was a headstrong kid looking for a big adventure. And uh, there was a coach recruiting me from the University of Georgia. Got a job at Arizona State during the recruiting process. It was 2,000 miles away from home. It looked like another planet from what I'd grown up with in Alabama. And, uh, and that's where I went. Who was your head coach? So we had a, a guy named Daryl Rogers who was a head coach. Daryl actually ended up leaving and went to the Lions. Uh, after my first year at Arizona State, and then John Cooper came in, you know, I had the chance uh, as a freshman under Daryl Rogers. We had a, a great defensive line coach named Rex Morris. Rex is a Larry guy, uh, coached the Selman brothers at Oklahoma, Ricky Bryan. I think Rex probably had 35 All-Americans at all the different stops that he went to. He made a big impact on me. He really did. He, they moved me to defensive line. I was a linebacker in high school, moved me to defensive line, and I was depressed. I was a 215-pound. You know, the biggest thing on my body were my knees and my elbows. Huh. Uh, and uh, he saw me on campus one day during camp and pulled over and picked me up. And trust me, when you saw me, nobody thought I was an NFL player. Nobody. They thought, you know, this is a kid that might graduate, you know, 
be a good student, maybe play a little bit, maybe as a senior. He said, hey, I know you're up depressed and upset about playing defensive line. And he said, you just got to trust me and hang in there. He said, I've you know, been around too many great ones not to know. And he said, if you listen and you work hard, he said, you'll play on Sunday, trust me. And I was an 18-year-old freshman. And, and what I learned from that whole interaction was just how powerful it was to have somebody say, I believe in you. So Rex, you know, I literally, every time I played in the league on Sunday, you know, I knew he was watching and I didn't want to let him down. So he was a really powerful guy for me early. You know, he left and went to the league. He and I stayed in touch and uh, still stay in touch to this day. So you end up uh, having an eligibility issue your last year at Arizona State, so you have to transfer to Florida. What happens? That was a tough time. So uh, uh, the, the year I graduated from high school was 1984. Uh, I know it's a long time ago, but uh, that was the first year for a rule they call Proposition 48. It was an academic qualifier rule. The first year for that rule, the only part of it was you had to have a 2.0. Um, I went to a really small Catholic school in Birmingham. You know, we had a teach method and you got to pass fail for most of your core academic classes. So there was some discrepancy over how my grade point average was calculated. All the while, I'm out there practicing with the team. So the NCAA ruled me ineligible for my freshman year because Arizona State allowed me to practice without completely vetting my transcript. And so they ruled me ineligible uh, with uh, the option to appeal. They granted them my appeal but they only gave me three years of eligibility with the option to appeal for a fourth. So this is all the NCAA's way of penalizing Arizona State, but I was the guy that got penalized. Play three years at Arizona State. Comes time to have my hearing with the NCAA. We had a bunch of transition. The head coach had left. We had a new athletic director. So I'm a kid basically going to the athletic director and saying, hey, you know, we've got this appeal coming up. What's going on? And he's, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be a rubber stamp deal. But I'm starting to look at it as a kid. You know, um, we're playing Air Force in the Freedom Bowl, and I'm thinking in a month from now, like, I could be done. I had no idea where I stood. I knew I was a pretty good college player, but, again, I had no idea that I would be a first-round draft pick or anything like that. And I said, well, so you guys have, like, submitted something that's – you know, our part of it, well, it doesn't really work that way. And so I kind of got I was becoming more and more unsatisfied with the answers I get. Yeah, keep in mind, I'm 21 years old at this time. I just kind of I got unsettled enough where I thought, you know, I asked the AD, I said, well, can people go? He said, well, yeah, they can, but they usually don't. And so I just decided I was going to go to my appeal. So I drove my car from Tempe, Arizona to Shawnee Mission, Kansas, which is where the NCAA was headquartered at the time, and sat in on the appeal. And uh, it was clear when I got there, no one had read anything. No one was familiar with anything, any aspect of the case. We went through everything, and they said, okay, we'll send you an answer in two weeks. And I said, I, I can't wait two weeks. I, I'm thinking I'm going to be out of my dorm in two weeks. You know, what do I do? Do I have to go in the draft? What do I do? And, and, 
And I said, no, I've been waiting for three years. I'm not leaving here until I get a decision. Keep in mind, I'm 21 and I'm talking to a bunch of university administrators and uh, they said, okay, go out and sit in the hall. Literally, I was shaking so bad that my pants were shaking. I came out uh, after about half an hour and said, we denied your appeal. You're eligible to transfer to any other Division One school and be eligible right away, or you can declare yourself eligible for the draft. Back then, you had to have permission from the NCAA to declare yourself eligible for the draft. So I called Rex Norris, my D-line coach with the Lions. Called my parents, obviously, told them. And, and uh, I called Rex, and they said, you know, what, do I, what do you think? What do I do? And he said, I'll check with our personnel guys. He got back with me and he said, you know, you're probably going to be a third round pick. You should stay in school. And so I had a chance as, you know, as a junior now we're getting ready to play air force. And so they allowed me to take recruiting trips. I picked Florida. It was a great decision. You know, this was a great place, a great place for me and went there, had a, had a really good senior year. And, uh, and got drafted by the Bears. But it just taught me a powerful lesson uh, as a young kid. You know, life's not fair. You know, you've got to learn to fight for yourself and advocate for yourself. In the NFL for a number of years, yep. three different teams, you become president of the, National, of the Players Association. So in, in your movement in the NFL, who were the coaches that you really – impacted you what, what were some of the experiences that you had in the nfl two or three of them that that you think really have affected you today that uh, have given you an opportunity to do what you do in terms of representing you know coaches athletes and so forth i was really lucky in my nfl career i played 15 years uh, for three organizations and i had the chance to play for several hall of fame head coaches and uh, they were each unique, each different. Uh, my first was, you know, Mike Dicka with the Chicago Bears. Mike was a phenomenal leader, um, what I would call an emotional leader, would have been, you know, a great field general in World War II. Great Saturday night speech, speech giver, just a really good motivator, but very emotional. And so, like a lot of teams, we took on the personality of the coach. You know, we could be really, really good. And when we hit adversity, we would get emotional just like Mike would. But I learned a lot from him and that, um, you know, Mike was not afraid of difficult conversations. Uh, as a matter of fact, he thrived on them. You know, if he had a problem with you, you would know about it. You know, you'd hear about it on the field, but then he also would bring you up to his office and you'd have tough conversations there, too. You know, I got traded to the Dolphins after my sixth year in Miami and got a chance to play for Don Shula for a year. Developed a relationship with Don. He was the head of the competition committee. I was the president of the union, so I was on the competition committee. So I had a chance to interact with Coach Shula, and I, I really think that was a big part of why I became a Dolphin. You know, with Don, he was at the end of his career, but you could still see why he was the best ever. You know, he had good balance in his life. One of my favorite Coach Shula stories is day of the game, they'll have a mass, you know, or, you know, church service for the team. So I go down and, and I walk in the meeting room where we're having mass. And the first thing I see is Coach Shula and he's dressed in an altar boy gown. 
And it was one of those things where just kind of a shocking sight where I saw it, I almost wanted to chuckle a little bit. But in the end, it was like very moving for me. And it said so much about Coach Shula because, you know, he did readings. He helped with communion. You know, at the end of it, I thought, this is really neat. This is this iconic leader. And, you know, if there's a Mount Rushmore of coaches, like Coach Shula's bust is going to be a part of that. So it's hard for people unless, you know, know his background, the you know, 325 victories and, you know, all the Super Bowls, the undefeated season. It's hard for people to understand a resume like that, you know, today. But I thought this is really great. This person is showing the entire team, one, that faith is important to him. And in his own way, he's willing to humble himself and serve. And it made a huge impression on me. And so I, I hold Coach Shula with, you know, in such high regard and with so much affection. And you say, how does a guy go that long in a burnout business? It's because he had some semblance of balance in his life. Faith was important to him and his family was really important to him. I learned a lot from Don just in that one year with him. Also had a chance to play for the great Jimmy Johnson who uh, came into Miami, uh, Hall of Famer. I still stay in contact with Jimmy. You saw the drive, the IQ, you know, the relentless nature. And Jimmy was another guy that thrived on tough conversations. You know, Jimmy has this line about, like, team discipline. Well, it depends on the player. You know, when, you know, you would go meet with Jimmy if you had an issue of some kind. If you went up and met with Jimmy, He'd have one sheet of paper on his desk, and it was your productivity chart. So literally, that'd be the only thing on his desk. And the whole time during the meeting, you'd see him pick up that chart and look at it. You would touch it. And that was his way of reminding you, this is how important this conversation is to me. It's how, how much you contribute. Then finally, you know, another great one was John Gruden. You know, John convinced me. You know, I went to school here at Florida, playing for the Dolphins, had a really good run with Miami. He convinced me to leave Miami and come to Oakland. It was John's passion, enthusiasm. He was the first one where he sounded a little bit more like a player, less like a coach. He could get goosebumps on, you know, somebody living on the equator. Just that kind of uh, passion, motivation. He brought it every day. So. You know, as I transition into this, my what I do now, I've really been fortunate. I know what great looks like. Guys come at it different ways. It's it was really good for me. Like I can sit down in front of a young coach. Uh, you know, I think I signed Lincoln Riley when he was 27 years old, and 15 minutes into the conversation, I'm like, okay, this guy has it. Really what I do now, you know, there's a technical part of it. There's a legal part, all those things. Um, but my previous career really equipped me well to just to be able to identify, like, who the real guys are and what are the qualities you need to be a great head coach. So now you end up in a situation with Texas where all of a sudden Tom Herman, the athletic director, says, hey, you're going to be my coach. You find out a day later that he's out and they're bringing in uh, Sark. So how do you handle, I mean, how do you handle that with your coach? You ride the wave with them emotionally. Um, you try to, this time of year, uh, you know, I don't sleep. 
because, you know, people are counting on us to do a great job for them, to advise them. And this is, you know, somebody's entire life. This is their life's work. With somebody in a situation like that, one, there's the technical part of it. You know, okay, this is where we are contractually, everything else. And then you start talking about, like, what are the next steps we need to make to start this transition? Um, is it a graceful exit? Is it a contentious exit? Why? You know, how do we now just start immediately writing what the next chapter looks like? You know, there's a grieving part of it. When these guys fail, and, and I don't think Tom failed, um, but I think when, when guys get fired, there's a whole emotional part of it. It's public. It's not like a business guy where they transition you to another department. So you got to you go through that kind of grieving process with them. I got to tell you, when I got fired from the Steelers, it was next to my father dying was the worst experience I ever had. I can't tell you how much I cried, how much it hurt, how much I couldn't believe it had happened to me. Because you sometimes think that, you know, you're invincible and it happens. And it's just, it's just uh, earth shattering because, you know, the football, as you know, some, most coaches aren't as balanced as Don Shula and Chuck Knoll in terms of their life, their whole yeah. life is football. And when that gets blown up, they're not sure what to do. And you know, having support like you being there to be able to help them through that grieving process along with their family, I think that's an important role that you play. It's really a part of it. You know, it's why we're, we spend a lot of time analyzing schools or analyzing jobs because you know Jed you know it you live through it and that's that's one of the things I think makes you great at your job is like you you've walked the walk you know what it's like uh, for these guys we spend a lot of time analyzing them in kind of in our own way characterizing like here are the challenges it could be political challenges, there could be financial challenges, um, but here are the challenges of the job. Uh, so they go in, it's eyes wide open because it's great to do great contracts, but you know, we just had the conversation in this office the other day, like if, if you and I had had the chance to talk way back when, when you got fired at Pittsburgh, you know, it, it takes a toll on us and, and we see what it does to the client. And, you know, nobody wants anyone to go through that. So we try to do everything we can on the front end to make sure, okay, you got to know what the challenges are here. And then, you know, when, when something bad does happen, you, you know, we've got to be there to help them pick up the pieces. So you represent uh, individuals that are going to be head coaches in college and head coaches in the NFL. What are some of the characteristics that you think are different in the head coach for college as opposed to head coach for the National Football League? It's really interesting. I, I think most college head coaches, you've got to be proficient at the X's and O's part. Um, and you also have to be an excellent recruiter. And those are two often disparate skill sets. You know, the college recruiting part for your listeners is so intensive. You know, you're writing letters to kids. You've got graphics departments doing graphics for kids, phone calls, texts, direct messages. So it's you're constantly in contact and selling these kids. 
So you have to be good at that. And then if you really want to be, you know, an elite level head coach, you've got to be great at the X's and O's part of it too. You end up with some of these college coaches and you, you watch the press conferences from, you know, big 10 media days or, or SEC media days. You see these guys, they're CEOs, you know, they've got big toolboxes. They're managing big staffs. Whereas the NFL still, the bulk of it is about football. And guys distinguish themselves by their play calling acumen, you know, their ability to design offenses or defenses. You know, they've not had as many leadership or management experiences as a college coach might have had coming up. You know, if you talk about Urban Meyer or Nick Saban or Brian Kelly, you know, Brian went from Grand Valley to Central Michigan to Cincinnati to Notre Dame. So he's really, as a CEO, he's turned around four companies. So he's developed this big toolbox, right, can deal with complex problems. Whereas in the NFL, you get a guy, he distinguishes himself technically as a play caller, and then you're just hoping he can do these other things. They really are, um, in many ways, different skill sets. And the college guys, typically, they have to prove it and repeat it. Prove it and repeat it if you're going to rise up and get one of those really big jobs. When you look at individuals that have moved from college to the NFL, there have only been a couple that have not had NFL experience that have been successful. One of them being Jimmy Johnson that you played for, that have had success going all the way back to Bill Walsh, is that they had that NFL experience with the Cincinnati, went to Stanford, and then came to the 49ers. Dick Vermeil, same thing. He's working with the Rams. He comes back. He then goes to work for the forty uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles. So, what do you think the challenge is for those individuals that have not had NFL experience moving from college into the National Football League? I think it's particularly in the salary cap era. You know, Jimmy would have been successful whenever because of his drive and 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 he's brilliant. I mean. Uh, Jimmy's IQ is off the charts. In the salary cap era, so much of this league is about allocating resources. And you're trying to assign values to players. So, uh, you know, in the college level, you know, if you're at USC, you're literally, you're competing with maybe five other schools in the nation for talent. Um, So you get the best talent. You know, now uh, you get to the league, it's, you know, you don't get to go out and just say, hey, it's us or Alabama or it's us or Texas. It's, you know, in the NFL, you're dividing up all the talent kind of equally. Some places do it better than others. Uh, so you get into this idea of like you've got to manage the salary cap and you'll get a lot of coaches that come into the league and they take over a bad job. They kind of chase nine and seven. Right. They kind of chase a winning record. So it's really easy to make some early decisions to just get you competitive near term, but you sacrifice long term. So I think that's really the biggest thing college coaches struggle with is just the idea of like the salary cap. And there's an asset allocation part of the league that's very real. What about the credibility aspect of the locker room and being able to win the players over from the standpoint of, this person understands that coaching 
the professional athlete is very different in terms of coaching the college athlete. I don't, Jed, I, I really believe, you know, I, I played a long time and I think players want to know two things. One, most importantly, can you help me? Mm -hmm. And then two, do you care about me? And so if, if a college coach shows up and he surrounds himself with a good staff, you know, the players will feel, Hey, this guy can help me. Uh, he can help me. Most guys, they all guys want to have all pro careers and they want to make money. Most, most players, you can establish credibility. Guys will know in about six seconds, whether or not you can help them. Then they're going to want to know tomorrow. Can you help me? And the next day, can you help me? They have to have a college coach enough technical expertise that the players believe. And then they also have to be able, as an organization, not just the coach, the whole organization has got to have those players feel like, all right, we care about you. I, I think one of the people you represent, Matt Rule, you know, had the NFL experience and then turned around two programs. And he seems to you know, have hit the ground in an organization with a, a new owner, uh, but has built credibility quickly you know, with the team and with the organization. Uh, my sense is him having that experience with Tom Coughlin gave him an advantage when he came into the league, not just uh, having been in it, but players understanding he had been in it and the like. Do you think that helped him? No question. And I, and I think like Matt's kind of DNA, he, he was a great college coach. In many ways, he approached college like an NFL coach. He spent time, more time kind of gravitating, you know, in the offseason as you're studying people and teams. He really probably spent more time kind of studying the NFL than he did college football. So I think, you know, all those things just kind of his natural way that he's wired, you know, when he was emulating others. He probably spent more time dreaming about and studying NFL franchises than he did college franchises. But the other thing Matt has that people, unless you really know him, don't understand is again, it's it's that high ceiling. He's got, you know, he's got he's very, very smart. I think the other piece too is as you're talking about coaches run organizations differently. He runs the organization as the CEO. He has an offensive play caller, a defensive coordinator, a special teams coach, where some other coaches want to focus more on their side of the ball and then hire someone else to oversee the whole piece. Uh, and you represent different types of people with different types of backgrounds. But as you uh, have an opening and you're looking to present your people to an owner or to an organization, how do you determine? which I think is, uh, is difficult, you know, which is the right fit and how do you, you know, how do you do that? I mean, to me, that's the most difficult part of your job is to, first of all, to convince someone to come aboard and then at the same time realizing that you've got other people that are going to comp compete for the same job. Well, in, you know, you and I have had some fun conversations over the years talking about this very thing. Right. So, uh, and I think, you know, I, you know, there's the right fit for everybody. And what I think we do, you know, as a group, 
you know, Alex Hammond, Corey Dorfman, Kyle McCarthy, and, and, and Dave. Um, I think what we do as a group is, you know, we represent each guy as an individual and we see each one as having different skill sets. You know, ultimately the owner or the athletic director makes the hire. All we can do is tell you, this is what we think is special about this person. And we try to provide some context and how to view their career arc and their record. You know, but ultimately, you know, the, the guy making the hire makes the decision. So, you know, we're, we're fortunate to work with a lot of great people, different types of people. I'm not going to tell Arthur Blank what's best for his business. Arthur Blank's going to make that decision. And it's got to be right for that team. And it's got to be right for the client or it's not right for anybody. So we try to, rep, you know, present the best sides of everybody we work with. But then ultimately, you know, your client on when you and I are dealing with each other professionally, they got to decide what they're looking for and what's best for them. So I have people all the time calling me, sending me emails about how do you become an agent, how do you get into it and so forth. Talk a little bit about what the entry level is and how many people are you know, applying. You're the, the person you're partners with, David Dunn, was our football manager when I was the defensive coordinator at UCLA. UCLA, yeah. So we, we go back a long ways. and um, But I, I'm curious, though, as you give – because I'm sure – you and David get uh, inquiries all the time in terms of people coming on that, that think this is a, you know, they, they watch uh, the Jerry Maguire movie and think this is a, an outstanding business. It's tough. Yeah, it is tough. Uh, I have really enjoyed this. Um, you know, this goes back to, I think, my experience with the NCAA and my experience as a union, really, as a union president. You know, I like advocacy. And so for me, you know, kind of my life prepared me for this to get in this, particularly on the coaching side. It's difficult because it's a relationship business. It takes if you want to do it well and do it at a high level, it takes a broad skill set. And so if, if people are thinking about being an agent, the player side is one thing. You know, you've got to have the technical ability to you know, do contracts and all those things, but you also have to have the ability to relate to young players and have them trust you and trust that, you know, you've got their best interest in mind. You know, in, in my world, when you're dealing with, you know, executives or, or coaches, you know, these are mature adults. You know, I think you've got to be able to offer a broad range of experiences of contacts and connections that, that take some time to, to develop. So I think for somebody to like kind of want to come in and do this, they would have to be one, be patient because it takes some time to develop those types of industry relationships. Um, or you got to like be in an industry and then decide you want to make this transition. As we look at it, I mean, you know, you and I have been through some things together, right, professionally over the years. There's there's no manual for this. So you want somebody that I think has got a broad and deep uh, set of experiences and expertises. But um, it's like anything else. If you want to break into a business, it's work and you're going to know it's going to be impossibly hard for three or four years. And most people quit, you know, right before they get to that third or fourth year. 
when you think about the National Football League and where it's going, do you see any trends in terms of football, in terms of the collective bargaining agreements coming on? Any concerns you have going forward about uh, the NFL? Yeah, I'm worried about our game. Um, I think players' safety and welfare will – I worry about the health of football as a whole. You know, I, I had three sons, and they're men now, and they all played football. Uh, I coached here at the Boys Club in Gainesville, Florida, for about five years. And, you know, I think a lot of parents are worried about their kids playing football. And the league has tried to lead on that issue, but I think there's a lot more work there that needs to be done. I think college football needs to pitch in on that as well, on the player safety and welfare side. So that's like a big, broad issue where, you know, I don't want us to become like boxing where, you know, only a certain type of person that, that, you know, wants to be like a boxer. I think, you know, football is one of those great sports because it's hard. It's physically hard and it's the ultimate team sport. I think it has really has something to offer our society and our young people. So, you know, I think health of the game long-term, you know, the game has been wildly successful and um, profitable. And my concern is, you know, we've got some kind of like this issue, some health, you know, uh, health of the game issues that because things have gone so well, we're not really spending enough time on. What about the social justice issues, the things that have occurred this summer that have changed some of the NFL rules as it relates to hiring, whether it be head coaches, coordinators, front office executives? I think it's great. And, you know, as a president of the union, I tried to lead on this issue a long time ago. Uh, I had a great chat with Troy Vincent. Um, he also, yeah, Troy Vincent runs the uh, football operations for the NFL and was a former, like you, president of the Players Association. Troy was my successor. That's right. And uh, I endorsed Troy to be my successor way back. Um, you know, we started working on diversity. Um, when I was the president and uh, because I thought it was the right thing and, and the right thing for the game and our players did too. This will be, this is good for us. We've got to find a way as a society and a sport to talk openly about race and it's got to be a safe place. I know when I first brought up this idea of diversity to our group and uh, it was, it was powerful, Jed. It was like, Half the black guys hated me for bringing it up. Half the white guys hated me for bringing it up. So I kind of walked into a room, Gene Upshaw, who's our executive director and one of my dear friends. And, you know, I kind of told him what I wanted to do. He said, you're going to get killed. I'm like, Gene, what are you talking about? He said, watch. And uh, so we started talking about it and I got killed. <laughs> and, and uh he pulled me aside and he said, Trace, he goes, I love you, but you're naive about race. And uh, he said, we're going to get this right. Uh, you know, we're going to fix it. And so, you know, we started having the dialogue with the league that ended up leading to the Rooney rule. So I, th I think we've got to create a safe place where we can talk about race, um, where I may say something that offends someone, but that shouldn't end my career. So it's, you know, if we all kind of come together with good intentions, I think a lot of great things are possible. You know, this past year, 
even with me, and I tried to pride myself on being aware, you know, with some of the things that were going on in the country, I, I went back to experiences that I had as a player with my teammates. We'd be going out after practice and, and you know, okay, we're going to grab dinner somewhere, maybe grab a beer. And, you know, Tim Bowens would say, no, like, we can't all ride together in this car. Somebody's got to ride with Trace. And I'm, like, oblivious to it, right? And like, okay, yeah, why, you know? And he said, well, we can't have more than two black guys in a car. We'll get pulled over. And I heard him, but I didn't listen. You know, I heard them and it, it was just so foreign to me. And you didn't think that that something like that was even possible. But that was something very real from my teammates and these guys that, you know, you're you're together 24 hours a day almost. And I heard them, but I didn't listen. You know, and, and you'd hear things like, gosh, I was coming home from work late. I got pulled over for no reason. I hear this from my teammates. And there was always a part of me that said, look, I've seen you drive. I'm sure you got pulled over. Or, you know, you know, your music's always at like 180 decibels. Maybe that was a part of it. So I heard them, but I didn't listen. So I think, you know, we're now we've seen enough of these things where I hope as a game and as a society that we're ready to listen. But now we got to act. Well, I really appreciate you taking time. I know this is a really, really your crunch time. So thank you uh, for joining us and uh, continued good luck as you continue to negotiate the right contracts for your people, <laughs> which is always fun. So again, thanks for coming aboard. I enjoyed it, Jed. I get smarter every time I talk to you. Thanks. Yeah.